Welcome to the Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you folks for joining us this week. we got a fantastic program in store for you this week. William Prentice, the CEO of Meridian Energy Group, stops by to give us an update on our weekly Davis Refinery Report. Of course, the Davis Refinery being constructed in the Bakken oil field, more specifically, Belfield, North Dakota, close to major transportation and distribution arteries. The Meridian Energy Group is spearheading the Davis Refinery, the first greenfield refinery to be built in the United States in over 50 years, and it's happening right in the Bakken oil field. In fact, their technology is so state-of-the-art, they are setting the standard for the new refineries in the world. The next one that's being built down in the uh, Permian Basin, down in Winkler, Texas, the Walton Refinery. Meridian is spearheading that one as well with the same technology that is making the air clean. So congratulations once again to Meridian Energy Group, and we'll check in with William Prentice in just a bit here on the Crude Life Week in Review. Also, Dr. Lauren C. Scott talks about solar, wind, natural gas, how it pertains to the economy, politics, and consumerism. Of course, he believes at the end of the day, it all comes down to the pocketbook. So this new push towards renewables is going to get the pitchforks sharpened, possibly the tar and feathers out because it may increase the pocketbook. We talk about how Germany, who is one of the uh, uh, poster children for renewables, they're paying 15 bucks in natural gas. Well, in America, it's less than three bucks. And I can't imagine that the uh, people are going to be too happy if it goes up to, say, where China is at $8. So talk a little bit about how that's going to impact the uh, public perception, as well as a history of Earth Day and how climate change became part of our lives lexicon. I tell you, we got a fantastic, fantabulous program in store for you today. William Prentice, the CEO of Meridian Energy Group, Dr. Lauren C. Scott, energy expert and economist, plus much, much more on today's episode of the Crude Life Week in Review. All right, let's get right to it here, folks. Our first interview, William Prentice, the CEO of Meridian Energy Group with our weekly Davis Refinery Update. We just have to get over that. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think so, too. That's why I, I, I love saying it. I, I, I love this angle of that the oil and gas industry is the only one trying to save the planet right now. And you know me, we don't get into politics here. So for me to say that, I got to really believe it. And I do. I really believe that, especially after the DAPL pipeline protest. I tried to have three protesters on my program because I wanted to legitimately hear their side of the argument. I could not air the interviews because they were so, they were so just, we, we, we do legitimate interviews here. We don't just put people on because they, you know, it's, it's, they got a week off of work. We don't do that. I mean, it was just so. Anyway, uh, let's just kind of uh, reset a little bit here. By the way, William Prentice, CEO of Meridian Energy Group. What we what we were originally talking about was the Davis Refinery and some of the hurdles they've encountered, and that's where we sidebarred a little bit to some of the um, extremism that's uh, bled into the uh, what originally had legitimate environmental concerns with reclamation and some of the things the industry took took uh, major strides in. That was the history part that you were talking about before. And where we're at now is a different ballgame. And let's let's go through a little micro timeline, if you wouldn't mind, at the Bakken out there with the Davis Refinery. You mentioned the Walton down the Permian probably is going to come on a year or two after the 
the Davis refinery. And are we looking at, I mean, I know, I think we broke ground already, but are we going to look at some footings and things this year? Give me a little micro timeline. Well, the, you know, the one major issue with regard to Davis is weather, of course. So, you know, what we're doing is, is trying to weatherproof the construction schedule. And that means uh, that, you know, we're adopting a fairly comprehensive modular approach to construction. That means we're probably not going to see a lot of activity this early this summer. Uh, we'll be back in the field finishing up, you know, the, the grading and so forth for foundations uh, as we get into uh, the middle of the summer. But most of the emphasis is going to be on uh, welding steel in shops all over the country and getting modules ready to ship up, you know, starting, uh, uh, well, you know, towards the end of summer this, com- this uh, coming year. And then uh, the heaviest construction activity will be during the summer of 2020. And the reason for that is, you know, we'll just, um, I just don't want guys out, you know, essentially trying to kill themselves by building uh, stuff and, you know, working with cranes and 70 below with wind chill. And, and when the wind comes up, it's just not safe. So we're, we're kind of erring on the side of safety here. And again, I've, I've built uh, stuff all over the world and uh, up including North Slope and, and Valdez, uh, Alaska. And weather conditions are more severe in North Dakota than they are on the North Slope. Um, so we have to plan around that. And that means that we're probably not doing a lot of what will be visible in the field till uh, about a year from now when modules will start to arrive on site. But until then, you know, we'll be We'll be working around on the project and getting foundations ready. Um, you know, again, weather is everybody's big concern as you start to spend a lot of money on the project. So we'll, we'll work with that. I just talked uh, to somebody today on their way to Williston, and they got a heads up that good luck getting onto the well sites. It's pretty muddy out there. So, I mean, just to emphasize what you're talking about, it's it's a lot easier said than done. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, that's, that's something we got to be careful of, too. Uh, the roads uh, can't handle a lot of this heavy equipment uh, right after the thaw. Um, I mean, one of the biggest problems we heard about during the, uh, the permitting process at the county was that during the construction of the, uh, some of the rail terminals and a couple of the gas plants, those guys didn't do a very good job of, uh, of managing the damage to the roads and, you know, that area is not real heavily populated, but when people drive around, they don't want to be running through three-foot ruts in the road from moving a crane around. So uh, we have to be careful there, and that means that we are probably going to limit our, our uh, construction window appreciably here this coming year because we have to improve some of the local highways before we can move equipment in. That's part of our deal with the county. Um, but yeah, I, I would much rather be able to get everything out there and start building immediately, but we, we have to take a staged approach here because of the weather issues. And that was William Prentice, the CEO of Meridian Energy Group. To listen to the full-length interview or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. My name is Jason Spies, and this is The Crude Life We Can Review.
Wyoming, the energy capital of the nation. The Wyoming Center at the Camplex, home of the Energy Exposition 20th Anniversary. June 26th and 27th, it's the longest-running oil and gas trade show in the Rockies. You go there, you get exposed. Register your company for a booth now. Attendees can pre-register online and bypass the crowds. Don't miss the industry networking dinner with keynote speaker, Governor of Wyoming, Mark Gordon. And guess who else? U.S. Rep. Liz Cheney, U.S. Senators Mike Enzi and John Barrasso live feed straight from the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. Then Chansey Williams and the Younger Brothers Band perform live on stage. Awesome. Oh, and don't forget the Energy Symposium. Join in the panel discussions on the new regulations and procedures. Discover how new large projects are going to benefit you, Wyoming, and the Rocky Mountain region. Like to golf or just network? Then check out the Expo Golf Tourney, benefiting the Gillette College Foundation on June 25th. Hosted by Energy Solutions Corp. and organized by Gillette Physical Therapy. Admission to the Expo is always free and the exposure is, you know, priceless. Energy Exposition and Symposium, June 26th and 27th, 2019. And you already know, we're going to party like it's 1999. Find out more at energyexposition.com. Historic. The first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects, groundbreaking, with construction resuming in early 2019. The Davis Refinery. No one in the world would ever take you for a killer with your ponytail and your baby. Welcome back to the Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Coming up next, Dr. Lauren C. Scott, energy expert and economist. All right. This is Dr. Lauren C. Scott, a um, professor emeritus of economics at LSU and president of Lauren C. Scott and Associates, Inc. One of the true heavyweights in the industry. Uh, You do forecasting for the state of Louisiana when it comes to energy and economics generally, don't you? Well, what we, uh, what I put out and have been putting out for almost four decades is the Louisiana Economic Outlook. And in the Louisiana Economic Outlook, we always have forecasts for oil prices and for natural gas prices and also for employment in the kind of key oil and gas sectors of our state, which is uh, basically Shreveport, uh, uh, Shreveport, Homa, and Lafayette, big oil centers. So if you're going to, you know, we're the number, what, well, at one time we were the number two producer of oil, number two producer of natural gas. I think we slipped a bit on natural gas. And so if you're going to forecast the Louisiana economy, you got to know the energy sector. Without a doubt. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on today's program is you, you do a great job of just stating the way things are and you know whether you agree or disagree with me that sort of thing and one of these questions I'm going to ask today is more of a you know it's more of a speculative question mixed with a little bit of politics and and mixed with just some common sense here and we don't get into politics on this program but this is this is something I think a conversation needs to have in the world of natural gas Um, when we look at the subsidies the government subsidies that have gone to like say solar and wind for example um, what would happen if we shifted that to natural gas? And the reason I say that is because 
the f- flaring's a real problem, and there's a lot of great little science projects going on, but the oil and gas industry is taxed quite a bit, and they do pay a lot of fees, and then they support a lot of church bake sales and kids softball uniforms and everything else. And then now they got to pay for research and development on top of it too. Um, what would happen? Do you think, or is that even a conversation that anybody would be open to if they shifted some of those solar and wind dollars to natural gas? Cause I think it's a solvable problem. And that's the, that's my approach on this is that not because they need subsidies, but because I think it's an actual solution that could happen in the next five to 10 years. Well, I mean, I, 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 number one, they, they don't need it. I mean, right now we're we're producing more natural gas than we can say grace over. And, of course, the, the, the clear indicator of that is what you guys and what the people in the Permian Basin are now doing with a lot of natural gas. That is, they're having, they're having to flare it off. They're having to flare it off because they don't have enough ways to get it the heck out of where they are mm-hmm. right now. As a matter of fact, some natural gas is actually flowing out of the Permian Basin has been selling at a negative price. The works the producers have been paying people to take it uh, that because there's just so darn much of it that they have to get rid of. Uh, I, 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 we could have a whole long conversation about uh, the role of natural gas versus renewables. I have to be a big uh, believer in fossil fuels and natural gas in particular. But the, the, the whatever whatever you and I may think about it. Uh, the renewables like wind and solar have got a grasp on, uh, especially the utility side. Uh, they 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 are servicing customers, and the customers are flat demanding that the, some of their uh, electricity be produced with uh, renewables. They're just demanding that, and which to me is really kind of crazy because you're going to end up happening here what happened in europe and that is when they started switching to renewables the price of their electricity went up in some cases went up markedly so so much so that some of them started backing off on uh demanding so much um so much wind and solar so uh i i think we uh, number one i think there's zero appetite out there for uh, subsidizing uh natural gas uh, politically speaking and i think um there is there is some appetite out there for subsidizing wind and solar, but even that is starting to go away now. They're basically saying, "Look, if you want to compete, compete out there with natural gas." I think that's more towards where things are leaning right now. Well, I let's do a quick little brief about the natural gas and 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 the renewables because. You know, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I would say that if I'm looking from a five thousand foot view. The subsidies that have gone into the wind and solar industry over the last, say, 20 years and the projections that were given back to us, um, whether it be the politicians or from from the from the energy companies themselves, has fallen short. You know, they're not at the mega megawatt of uh, or terawatt of storage like they thought they would be in solar. And a lot of the reports coming out of Texas now that these uh, solar panels did not make. The, the money or the returns that they thought they would. And so, and I agree with you, there's zero, zero appetite for a conversation in this. That's why I'm having it because I just see how close we are to actually solving a real problem as a country. And, and, you know, I, 
there's there it's it's a shame to see all that natural gas get flared is what i'm getting at so just t- yeah, yeah yeah i mean I, I totally agree with you there are so many advantages that natural gas has over wind and solar as i see it uh, number one is we've got plenty of it uh the nice thing about natural gas is it's always there it's the one constant you got plenty of it it's going to be there whereas the wind does not always blow and the sun does not always shine and uh, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, which typically happens at the very time you need the wind to blow and the sun to shine, is uh, you have to you have to have a backup, and that backup is always going to be uh, natural gas-fired power plants. And there's other there are just other things that the other that the people who promote this just just grossly ignore. One is that wind and solar take up huge amounts of land. I mean, you have to cut down lots of trees to put in. Uh, a solar facility, you know, especially the states in the southeast that are very wooded. You know, the west is not so bad, but in the southeast, you got to cut down a lot of trees. And it's amazing if you're cutting down trees for wind and solar, you know, there's no hue and cry about spotted owl uh, habitat going away or bird habitat going. They don't care in those particular cases. Which brings us to an in case of wind people, uh, the, the, the environmentalists totally ignore the bird kill. I mean, the bird kill on, on the on, on wind is just astonishing. The, the uh, Ottoman Institute looked at just one canyon, uh, Colorado, can, excuse me, California, I think it's called the Amata Canyon, I believe that's right. And that one canyon kills something like 4,000 birds a year. And it's very indiscriminate. You know, you got you got golden eagles in there. You got raptors in there, not just sparrows and other birds that you don't, you might not really care about. So the, the wind and solar folks get away with a lot simply because they're renewable. And I, I think that's that's a side that needs to be spoken about a whole lot more than it is. Let me ask you about the wind wind programs reclamation uh last i checked it's been a number of years but my understanding was is they really didn't have a cohesive or very very good uh reclamation program so a lot of those farmers are just going to have those wind turbines sitting there long after their expiration date well there's that plus i think a lot of farmers who uh who bought into that also discovered something else and that is that living close to 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 uh, wind turbines is not a particularly happy thing to go through i mean they are not quiet uh there is a hum that's associated with them that is that is nerve-wracking to many people that man has been a problem as well and so and it's just not all nice you know where i'm from i'm actually from the permian basin i'm from west texas and out there you don't have to worry about trees and you don't have to worry about birds so much there's not any hardly any birds because it's so such much of a desert area so it, it's okay. The problem is you, you keep coming back to this, and that is that the wind doesn't blow all the time. In particular, the wind doesn't blow so much in in June and July. June, July, and August, it's just not real constant like it is the rest of the times of year. And that's the very time you need to be generating electricity to run our air conditioners. And they haven't figured out the storage problem yet uh, when it comes to electricity generated by wind and solar. And uh, until they do that, uh, they've just got it's going to still remain, I think, almost a single-digit part of our of our electricity grid. And that was William Prentice, the CEO of Meridian Energy Group. To listen to the full-length interview or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. My name is Jason Spies, and this is The Crude Life Week in Review. Oh,
Gillette, Wyoming, the energy capital of the nation. The Wyoming Center at the Camplex, home of the Energy Exposition 20th Anniversary. June 26th and 27th, it's the longest running oil and gas trade show in the Rockies. You go there, you get exposed. Register your company for a booth now. Attendees can pre-register online and bypass the crowds. Don't miss the industry networking dinner with keynote speaker, Governor of Wyoming, Mark Gordon. And guess who else? U.S. Rep. Liz Cheney, U.S. Senators Mike Enzi and John Barrasso live feeds straight from the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. Then Chansey Williams and the Younger Brothers Band perform live on stage. Awesome. Oh, and don't forget the Energy Symposium. Join in the panel discussions on the new regulations and procedures. Discover how new large projects are going to benefit you, Wyoming, and the Rocky Mountain region. Like to golf or just network? Then check out the Expo Golf Tourney, benefiting the Gillette College Foundation on June 25th, hosted by Energy Solutions Corp. and organized by Gillette Physical Therapy. Admission to the Expo is always free, and the exposure is, you know, priceless. Energy Exposition and Symposium, June 26th and 27th, 2019. And you already know, we're going to party like it's 1999. Find out more at energyexposition.com. I've been moving around a lot these days. From apartment to apartment, state to state. And it doesn't really matter where I go. There's only one place I could call my home. Welcome back to the Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Coming up next, Dr. Lauren C. Scott, energy expert and economist. Uh, when it comes to electricity generated by wind and solar. And uh, until they do that, uh, they've just got, it's, it's going to still remain, I think, almost a single-digit part of our, of our electricity grid. How about when it comes to solar? Um, of course, solar, a lot of people think it's a great renewable as well. Some of the things that I've looked at is, of course, the, the mining when it comes to creating the batteries that are behind. Sure. Uh, is is a little bit more like that. Your bird, your your bird issue reminded me of the issues with solar, which are kind of counterintuitive too. And this goes all the way back to the paper and plastic bag argument when people started realizing that uh, paper bags were worse for the environment than plastic ones because paper ones not only are you cutting the trees down, but now you got to use all of this other energy in order to create the pulp and the paper and the bags, et cetera, et cetera. That's what I see happening on the solar side of things is, is you know, is are, between the production and the, and the lithium mines and everything else, what, what are some of the issues that you see with solar? Those are the ones that I see. They're not up to, up to par, but um, are there are other disadvantages to solar that you see? Well, I mean, the, the, again, to me, the main thing is if you want to do solar anywhere other than the desert areas of the United States, um, you, if you want to do it, say, in the southeastern part of the United States or the northeastern part, just the eastern part of the United States in general, you've got to cut down a humongous amount of trees. You've got to destroy a lot of forest in order to start meaningfully generating a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, electricity by way of solar. And, of course, that's also the area of the country that quite often is cloudy. Uh, and for sure, the sun only 
sons half the time of the year. Uh, and, the, and and also, if you read some of the literature on the bird kill associated with uh, with solar, there's quite a bit of that too. Because what you're doing is you're taking those those mirrors and you're reflecting it into one place. And if the birds fly through that place, it's like being zapped. I mean, they just get zapped as they fly through that area. So um, to me, we keep kind of coming back uh, to when it comes to solar. Your fuel costs are almost free, but there's a whole lot of stuff that is not free. And the bird kill, the destruction of forest area, um, the fact that you can't store it yet, they haven't figured out a way to do that. What that means is you always have to have a coal-fired power plant, not either, uh, excuse me, a natural gas-fired power plant as a backup when the wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine, which means ultimately you're still going to have to you're still going to have to pay for that, that gas-fired power plant, and it's it's just not clear to me that in the long run this is a good plan. Well, and that's why I keep going back to this the the, the crazy argument for natural gas subsidies because it just seems like no matter how you slice and dice it, whether you're talking about coal or whether you're talking about natural gas, I'm sorry, uh, wind or solar. It just seems like that natural gas has to be there as the failsafe, as the safety net. And right now, we've got such an abundance, like you were saying, it's trading on a negative dollar value down there in the Permian because of there's so much of it. But then I just see all these, you know, these capitalists that are, you know, the one guy, there's some crazy guy up in Canada using natural gas to mine bitcoins. I don't even know how that works, but good for him, you know, and then you got these other guys trying to convert it into liquid natural gas and other guys trying to turn it into batteries and everything. I just see where, you know, solar and wind has really had, you know, no pun intended, but they've had their day in the sun and their advancements are, are, you know, less than stellar. They 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 they, yeah, they well, promised they'd be further along. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Now, what, however, what is going on is that if you go to, but personally, any of your utility firms, the people who are actually generating electricity, they are just under immense political pressure to switch to more renewables. I mean, it is it is very very, it is a very very strong and powerful political force on them. So they're doing it anyway. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna switch to it, even though there are issues associated with um, uh, reliability, associated with other aspects of, of the, all the things that you and I have been talking about that are negative. They are still being uh, politically pressured uh, to uh, uh, to uh, do that to, to switch to renewable. So I I think it's a march that's going to continue on, and uh, I think it's going to be slow. Because people are going to find out about the cost of it, especially the utility cost of it. So I think there's going to be, there's just going to be a problem there down the line. Yeah, it'd be nice to see just kind of iron out a little bit and instead of trying to, <clears throat> you know, say everything's for this, maybe you just figure out the pockets they're good for. I mean, you know, farmers figured out a pretty good use for wind a long time ago, and solar power <clears throat> seems to power up cell phones and batteries, pretty, <clears throat> you know, the, the smaller type things. And so maybe. <clears throat> Maybe that's just more of the conversation is, is how, after 20 years of pretty good R&D, what is wind and solar actually used for? And how can we best maximize it and, and admit maybe some of these things are wrong? But anyway, that's... Well, I, I mean, I, yeah. I, will, I will tell you, you've probably figured it out the number of times you and I have talked before, is that I'm kind of a, a mar- very market-oriented economist. And so my position is uh, we... we 
try to keep the government as much out of this as possible and let the market work it out. And in, 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 in smart, clever, greedy capitalists will figure out you know, exactly how much wind and solar should be in there. If it really is a net positive addition to our electricity grid, smart, clever, greedy capitalists will figure that out. Just like smart, clever, greedy capitalists have figured out how to get oil out of the ground in North Dakota and get it out of the ground even when the price of oil sometimes drops as low as $30 a barrel. They know how to do that profitably because they're they're cl- they're smart they're clever they're they're motivated by pro- the you know by the profit motive, and that is a very very powerful motive. And to the extent that the profit motive will bring in wind and solar, let it do it, but keep the subsidies out of the picture. In my opinion, how about when it comes to uh, the political landscape that we're into right now, where um, the narrative has shifted quite a bit. And one of the things that we've talked about on this program, and I think you and I have even talked about it a little bit, is this cult of environmentalism that's been on the rise. And it's we've been tracking it for about five years because it's it to to well, it's gotten to the point where it's it's beyond politics. And you've got you know you've got Colorado doing what they're doing. They've they've passed some new laws that make it very difficult for about sixty percent of the uh, land to be drilled on and the governor came out and called it the war on oil and gas and then you've got oregon just passed in the senate a similar bill that colorado proposition 112 went through on and a federal judge in wyoming put a halt on some leases some for the first time and now you got two presidential candidates bernie sanders and elizabeth warren actually saying in their presidential platform they're going to ban oil and gas drilling if elected. This is getting out of hand. What's going on? I mean, whatever happened to plastic straws? <laughs> I mean, I mean, did well, they? I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, again, I'm an economist, so I tend to think of these things in economics terms. Uh, and so, first of all, I think this is going. This is going far beyond science now, and it's now uh, well. To no small extent, it's religion to many people, as opposed to being silent. Well, I mean, what I tell people is I, I show them a picture of the price of oil, a, a graph of what it's done since 1980. And and I tell them that I, t- you know, I taught, LSU, taught forecasting to MBAs, executive MBAs at LSU for 30 years. And I would show them this picture, and I'd say, this is the second most difficult thing in the economy to forecast in the future and you can see why it's very it's highly variable it bounces all over the place and it moves for reasons that are very unpredictable i mean who could have predicted in 2014 for example the latter part of 2014 to the saudis would suddenly pump a whole lot of oil on the market who would have guessed that and then drive the price down to under 30 at one point who could have predicted that then i'll show them a picture of the price of the the uh, uh, food consumption in the United States, which is a nice, neat, straight line going straight up. And I said, scientifically speaking, it's clear that it's easier to forecast food consumption than it is oil prices. I mean, it doesn't take a, a giant, a middle giant to figure that out. It's statistics. The more stable something is, the easier it is to forecast. And so oil prices are, I can tell them, the second most difficult thing to forecast because it's very highly variable and unpredictable what it's going to do. And I say, if I told you I could forecast the price of oil 20 years in the future, plus or minus $2 a barrel, and we should change all of our living standards, all of our tax structure and everything based on my ability to forecast oil prices. He would say, you are nuts. We can see that it's very difficult for us. We can't do that. We're not going to do that. And oil prices are the second most difficult thing to forecast. The most difficult thing to forecast 
is the climate. It's changing all the time, and it's changing for reasons that are very unpredictable, in my humble opinion. And so the idea that we should change our entire lifestyle and our tax structure and everything. And that was William Prentice, the CEO of Meridian Energy Group. To listen to the full-length interview or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. My name is Jason Spies, and this is The Crude Life Week in Review. Back to town. Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects, groundbreaking, with construction resuming in early 2019. The Davis Refinery. Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts, and then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio, and if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. From the winter time in the midnight black, cold coming up behind you, teeth in your neck, slow on the road like the fingers of a ghost. Wind is crying through a crack in the window. Welcome back to the Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spees. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Coming up next, Dr. Lauren C. Scott, energy expert and economist. And so. The idea that we should change our entire lifestyle and our tax structure and everything on the notion that somebody can forecast the climate, weather, I don't care what you call it, 20 years in the future, plus or minus two degrees, to me is absurd. That is just scientifically absurd. And, and, and one, of the, one of the indicators is absurd. I say, let's do, let's do a little, let's do a little uh, investigation. Go back and look at what the headline said on the first Earth Day about 33 years ago. And the headlines on first Earth Day 33 years ago were man-made global cooling is going to destroy the Earth. We don't do something about it. That's what they said. And then, of course, we had the hockey stick in the, ni- in the 90s, and it switched to man-made global warming is going to destroy the Earth. We don't do something about it. Well, then suddenly the warming thing kind of went flat. It didn't warm anymore. So they had to come up with another angle. And so that was man-made, and this is, this is the silliest scientific phrase I've ever heard, man-made climate change. Well, how in the heck do you measure climate change? Of course the climate's going to change. Are you mad? Of course it's going to change. And, uh, and so I just think it's silly in the, the primary reason it is silly and the primary reason is there's so much activity behind it is because, Jason, this is a huge industry. This is like a $2 billion industry funded by governments around the world. And they are not going to do anything to stop that money coming in. They're going to keep making the case that this is a problem that's going to destroy us all. That's the only way they're going to get governments to continue to give them $2 billion a year. 
So I, I just, I, you know, my, when I see a, a situation like this, which makes no sense, my response is follow the money. Why, why are people promoting this? And I think it's because there's so much money to be made in the sector. Well, what I think is really kind of interesting in this whole environmental movement and this cult of environmentalism, religion is of environmentalism as well, is that we 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 have we we've gotten beyond plastic straws. So at one point, the plastic bags and plastic straws, everybody was okay with it. Even the oil industry was okay with it because they knew they would figure out a new way to use that plastic in a new way. I mean, the market would, would decide, oh, you don't want straws? Okay, well, we'll just figure out a new hard plastic that pools can go in everybody's backyard for under two grand instead. You know, it'll, so, the market will work itself out is what I'm getting at. Now it just seems like the t- environmentalist of today just texts and trolls and drinks Keurig coffee and points fingers at things and they don't really go out and do anything they, they don't actually go out and try to you know ed bagley jr god bless his soul drove around in a garbage powered car for a long time you know and and that's why people talk to him because he was walking the walk and living it too now it just seems like it's it's a catchphrase and it's a political movement type thing to where like i said two presidential candidates are actually saying a very ridiculous statement which is we're going to ban oil and gas drilling. That That is like, honestly, inviting the world to become the walking dead without zombies in a week. I mean, could you imagine without having oil and gas activity immediately? That'd be unreal. Yeah. Could, I mean, that's, that's, it'd, be, it'd be remarkably remarkably silly. But, uh, well, you know, there's a, whole, there's a whole cadre of people out there that want to keep it in the ground. But they, they have no idea. They have, they, they, they have no idea about the next stage. They have no idea about the next stage. They have no idea about the limitations of well, wind and solar that you and I have talked about before. Well, even it's just, it's just, re- it's just re- really remarkably, remarkably silly. It's like AOC's idea that you know we'll we'll we'll, we'll go from uh, the United States to Europe on a you know, floatable train or something like that instead of planes. It's just just silly stuff. Well, I I, I I equate it to it's like um, the the guy that fringe candidate uh, what's his name uh, Vermin Supreme that wears a boot on his head looks like a Merlin guy, and uh, he wants to you know do like dragon legislation because games Game of Thrones is popular and he knows that'll catch on. That's what it sounds like to me. You make up something absurd like dragon legislation because it sounds hip and cool, and you can pander to the lowest common denominator type thing. That's that's kind of what it seemed like to me, but. Um, Talk to me a little bit about what's going on in in the in, in that narrative. Then, I mean, you know, is it um, is this picking up steam? This this let's let's ban it. I mean, like I said, it's happening in a couple states now to where they're doing this. Yeah, well, I mean, it, here's the interesting thing is that uh, when you look at polls and you ask people where does climate change in the United States, where does this rank in terms of your issues of concern? The climate change is way the heck down. The list. I mean, there are a lot of things people are way more concerned about than climate change, and that's why I think you know. Here's here's my position. People always vote their pocketbook, and and what's going to happen in 2020 is people are not going to people are going to look around and say, "How's the economy doing?" And that's what's going to determine who they vote for. Uh, if, if it's doing really, really well, they tend to vote for the incumbent or the incumbent party. If the economy is starting to sink and looking bad, then they vote for the other party. That's just that's just the kind of the way it goes. 
And so, uh, and I, I think that's a little bit what was at stake in, in 2016. And that was Dr. Lauren C. Scott, energy expert and economist. To listen to the full-length interview or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. That's going to do it for today's program. I'd like to thank Dr. Lauren C. Scott and William Prentice with the CEO of Meridian Energy Group for joining us here on today's program, talking about the Davis Refinery and, of course, all of the ins and outs of the economy, oil and gas, natural gas, solar and wind with Dr. Lauren C. Scott, energy expert and economist, as well as a featured fantastic speaker. By the way, if you folks are looking for a great speaker for your event, whether it's energy or economy or just What's going on in the world? Dr. Lauren C. Scott is one of the best. He's been out in the Bakken many times. That's where I met him. And uh, not to mention out at Jackson Hole, that big energy economics summit that they have every year out in Jackson Hole. I met him there as well. So Dr. Lauren C. Scott. All right, that's going to do it for today's program. Like I said, I'd like to thank you folks for tuning in and joining us here at the Crude Life Week in Review. We'll be back next week on this radio station at this time. And if you're streaming us on the internet or maybe you're downloaded one of our podcasts on our many platforms like iTunes, appreciate that very much. And if you go to our website, up near the top, we have one of those navigation bars and we've got the social media tab. And if you click on that, you can check out our network. We have 350,000 social media followers. Check us out, like our pages, be part of the action. That's thecrudelife.com. From the staff here at the Crude Life Media Network, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to keep calm and frack on. You are the queen of the midnight run, when years dark to test the sun. The AM radio and the dashboard lights, you have a road in the middle of the night. You have a road in the middle of the night. Gillette, Wyoming, the energy capital of the nation. The Wyoming Center at the Camplex, home of the Energy Exposition 20th Anniversary. June 26th and 27th, it's the longest-running oil and gas trade show in the Rockies. You go there, you get exposed. Register your company for a booth now. Attendees can pre-register online and bypass the crowds. Don't miss the Industry Networking Dinner with keynote speaker, Governor of Wyoming, Mark Gordon. And guess who else? U.S. Rep. Liz Cheney, U.S. Senators Mike Enzi and John Barrasso live feeds straight from the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. Then Chansey Williams and the Younger Brothers Band perform live on stage. Awesome! Oh, and don't forget the Energy Symposium. Join in the panel discussions on the new regulations and procedures. Discover how new large projects are going to benefit you, Wyoming, and the Rocky Mountain region. Like to golf or just network? Then check out the Expo Golf Tourney, benefiting the Gillette College Foundation on June 25th, hosted by Energy Solutions Corp. and organized by Gillette Physical Therapy. Admission to the Expo is always free, and the exposure is, you know, priceless. Energy Exposition and Symposium, June 26th and 27th, 2019. And you already know, we're going to party like it's 1999. Find out more at energyexposition.com.